millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. Pod. Cast. Something's happened. A veriform bouquet of content delivered with precision and love to you. This is 99% Invisible. You're now tuned in to San Quentin's Ear Hustle. Prepaid call from... What's next? What's next? What's next? And I'm saying, what's next? This is Death in Ice Valley. Podcast. It gets better with time. It moves outward and upward with inchworm determination. It is here. It is inside you. It is about to begin. Each week I'll be bringing you some new, interesting and exciting stuff to listen to and discovering the best in audio storytelling from New Zealand and around the world. And with more than half a million podcasts already out there and hundreds of new ones coming out every single day, I'm going to need a bit of help. So next time you listen to a great story, maybe it's a new true crime series you've been enjoying, a fan podcast dedicated to shows like The Walking Dead or Downton Abbey, something about food or science or technology, or voices and perspectives you just don't normally hear from, then do let me know. You can do this by email at pods at radionz.co.nz, on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. That's at RNZ Podcast Hour. Or you can record and send in voice messages using RNZ's Vox Pop app. We'll be featuring some of your recommendations on future shows. Anyway, let's get started. And this week, a podcast made inside a prison and a box that can make you laugh. The laugh box could chuckle. <laughs> it could laugh with side relief. <laughs> It even had a reel, controlled by the foot pedal, that was just titters, tiny little one-person laughs. Plus, the number one podcast for those involved or just interested in the production of beef animals and dairy herds. Lamb is pernicious. Lamb is the one issue that no one's talking about and the issue that everyone should be talking about. Lamb is a way of life. It's, um, it's part of our heritage in New Zealand, and which is why it's so hard to hear that... Um, causing so many problems in this country. That's all coming up on the Podcast Hour from RNZ National. San Quentin State Prison, north of San Francisco, is one of America's oldest and most notorious jails. With thousands of inmates and the country's largest death row, the place is so large it even has its own zip code. And it's also become home to one of America's favourite podcasts, Ear hustle, a phrase which is prison slang for eavesdropping, is the first podcast to be created entirely inside a prison. And it's racking up millions of downloads, with recent polls putting it ahead of podcast favourites like This American Life and Radiolab in the popularity charts. 
Ear Hustle shares stories of prison life told by the prisoners and the guards themselves, covering topics like what makes a good cellmate, parenthood in prison and capital punishment. In a moment, I'm going to talk to one of its creators about how the show gets made and its success. But before I do, here's a clip from an episode of Ear Hustle called The Workaround. How do you make a fifi? What the hell is that? What is a fifi? I have no clue. <laughs> have you ever heard of a fifi? Yeah, I heard of a fifi. Yeah, my cell used to have one a long time ago. Yeah. I fool had a couple of them actually. <laughs> You're now tuned in to San Quentin's Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. I'm Erline Woods. I'm incarcerated here at San Quentin State Prison in California. I'm Nigel Poor, a visual artist who volunteers at the prison. And together, we're going to take you inside. Today on the podcast, we're talking about looking good and feeling good in prison. Erlon, when I first came to prison, honestly, I expected everybody to be really scruffy. Scruffy? Sorry. You're like a little dog or something. Yeah, I'm sorry. But the thing is, I was wrong. Hell yeah, you were wrong. I know, I know. And I was really shocked because guys take great care of themselves. Of course we do. Really well put together. Of course we are. And a lot of guys, not every guy, but a lot of guys are in really good shape. Getting there. And <laughs> don't give up, B. And they obviously think about their hair, their skin, their clothes. We do. And in prison, it takes extra effort. You can't just go to the local mall. You can't go to the barbershop. You can't go to the shoe shine spot. There's a lot you can't do. Yeah, and it's not trivial stuff. Inside or outside, looking good is important to feeling good about yourself. That's right. There's a lot that can get you down in here, like long days, bad food, no women. One way to show yourself and everyone else that prison doesn't own you is to look your best. It's self-respect, self-preservation. So that's what we're going to hear about on this episode. How do guys do it? How do you keep your clothes looking sharp? How do you keep your skin clear? How do you get a good haircut? And also we're going to hear about what some guys do to escape this place in their minds. And how to make a fifi. You know people are going to wonder what a fifi is. (laughs) Even some guys in here are going to wonder. Let them wonder. We'll get to old fifi later in the podcast. Okay, so let me ask you something more mundane. What's up? I've heard there's a specific way in prison you have to brush your teeth. You don't spit into the sink. Yeah, in prison, you're living in these cramped quarters, so you want to keep the germs at a minimum, so you spit the foam in the toilet. What happens if you spit in the sink? It's very disrespectful and very uncleanly. (laughs) So so you're saying at home my sink is really dirty? No, I mean, it's just you and your partner, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, in here, it's you and a stranger. What else is different about brushing your teeth? Well, if you can afford it, you can buy some toothpaste and a nice toothbrush. But if you can't afford it, you get a flimsy toothbrush from the state and some tooth powder. Oh, tooth powder. (laughs) (laughs) 
You mean like baking soda? Not even baking soda. It's like crushed up chalk. Uh, what's it do for the breath? Nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> hey, but it'll buff your teeth. It's the Steam. polish. It's the polish. <laughs> it's prison polish. Um, okay, so keeping your teeth clean is different in prison, and so is getting the wrinkles out of your clothes, which is something you're going to want to do on visiting day, right? Yeah. Visiting day are pretty much on the weekends, and there are few irons in the housing unit. Two irons for like mm-hmm. 800 people, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. you might not get your chance. But as always, there's a workaround, and Jason Jones laid it out for you. That he did. Or did he iron it out for you? <laughs> he did. So if you don't have an iron, right, you use a uh, any kind of comb, right? And what you do is put your pants, lay your pants onto the bed, and you get the back of the comb, and you press hard and just straighten it all the way out, and it creates the crease, right? It creates the crease. You can do that with your shirt and everything. And then you um, unroll your mat at night, and put it up under your mat and just while you sleep, you sleep on top of it. So in the morning when you wake up, it's freshly creased. Do you have to like dampen them or anything? No, you don't have to dampen them. You can, but you don't have to. Wow. Yes. All you need is a comb and a mattress. What works even better if you, if you get some floor wax and you put it on the crease as you ironing it out with the, with the comb, as you're pressing it out with the comb, then it locks it in the crease. Yes, it even gives it like a shine. All right, Erlon. So your pants and your shirt are looking nice and crispy. But if it's visiting day and your hair's a mess, what are your options? Well, there's a lot of guys in here who cut hair. But if you really want to look sharp, you do what I did and shoot the shit with Big Zoe out on the yard. Big Zoe's Barbershop. Yeah, Zoe's Barbershop. Right now we're out on the patio. <laughs> Come out here. We while you're waiting, you can play some basketball. You can play tennis. I even got horseshoes for you. And you can get shitted on by, by Seagull sitting in the chair. <laughs> yeah. And uh, all are welcome. Don't matter what type of hair you have, what race you are. I do it all. I cut white, black, Hispanic, Asian, curly, wiry, thin, nappy, wavy. I cut them all. Yeah, I'm about to give him a high top fade. No. He's gonna look like a marine when I, I get to No, it I don't want no high top fade. <laughs> you, every time people look at my hair once you're done, they salute. They say how I have a good job my barber is. <laughs> Shooting the crap for a minute, cutting their hair and getting them out to work, looking looking fresh. It makes a person feel good, you know. You feel good making them look good, and they walk out looking good, so they feel good. If you don't feel good, then I don't look good. Have you ever f***ed somebody up? I f***ed you up before. Yeah, you did. That's why I said that. Yeah, yeah. And boy, was he hot. But I keep telling him, you can't sit there and talk and dictate what I do while I got the clippers in your beard. What's wrong with you? You I was just, no, 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 no. Tell the truth. I, he used to cut my I, hair, I, right? I and I used to lie. walk around and he used to get customers. Lie. It I'm, wasn't his I'm haircut, it was mine. I'm right now because that dude had a bad ass beard and afro. Oh, man, he oh, was, I thought I was the billboard. Shut up. <laughs> okay, well, you got it. Half 
Erlon, you still have that beard, but what happened to the afro? <laughs> well, I gained weight, and the afro for me, <laughs> it made me look bigger. Are you sure? It seems like it would balance nah, you out. Nah, nah. If I cut the beard, I'd really look skinny. All right. So that's the clothes and hair. Now let's talk about skin. All right. Guys in here have no wrinkles. I mean, I am serious. You can talk to a guy who's 60, and honestly, he looks like 40. How? <laughs> well, there's a saying that prison preserves you. Mm. Maybe it's, you don't see that much sun. I don't know. Part of episode 14 of Ear Hustle called The Workaround, and thanks to Julie Shapiro and the team at Radiotopia for letting me share that with you. And in case you're still wondering what a fifi is, uh, let's just say it's a special item the inmates have to make them feel a little less bored and lonely. Now, it's a little bit rude, so I think we'll probably just leave it there. Now, the two voices that you heard hosting Ear Hustle are Erlon Woods, who's serving a 31-year-to-life sentence for attempted second-degree robbery, and Nigel Poor. And I spoke to Nigel via Skype from California and asked her how she started working at San Quentin. I was interested in prisons, but I didn't want to just go in as an observer. And in my other life, I'm a professor of photography. And I heard about an organization there called the Prison University Project. And it's all run by volunteer professors, and they were looking for someone to teach. So I started volunteering, teaching a history of photography class. And I did that for three semesters. That was in 2011. And that's how I got, like, how I got into the prison. And that's how I got interested in doing other projects inside. And when did you meet Erlon, your co-host? So I met Erlon in about 2012. After I stopped teaching, I was working on a radio project there. And he was one of the guys that was working. He was super quiet. Took me a really long time to get to know him. But over, you know, about a year, we just started chatting and... Uh, I really liked him. I thought he was interesting. And we started talking about branching off from radio and doing another project. So I started talking to him about podcasting. And he had never heard of a podcast before. So that was the first thing like to explain what the heck a podcast is. And then we just started plotting our plan to do a podcast. And we happened to hear about Radiotopia, which is the podcast network that works with us. They were doing a contest to find a new podcast. And so on a lark, we decided to apply for it, submit an application, and then we won. <laughs> Amazing. And you started the podcast up, uh, I guess, with fairly modest ambitions. You didn't think it was going to be so popular, did you? Totally modest ambitions. In fact, our first idea was we just wanted to air it inside San Quentin on the closed circuit station. And our big dream was to try to get it aired inside of other prisons. We didn't really think about it being heard by the outside population. But then when we heard about the pod quest and entered it, we started to think, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should think about it being on the outside. And we, we thought, you know, maybe a couple hundred people would listen, maybe a couple thousand. I mean, we really didn't know how popular it would become. I think it surprised everybody, you know, including the prison administration, Radiotopia and us. And we have something like over 12 million downloads now, which <laughs> to me, it's a shocking number. It's hard for me to kind of even imagine it. And listeners all over the world. All over the world. It's great. We hear from, I mean, recently we've got, you know, letters and emails from Zimbabwe and the Mauritius and obviously New Zealand and Australia, all over Europe, Hong Kong, Chile. It's just, it, it's shocking to me. 
Why do you think it's been so popular? Because it's, I, I was trying to work it out what its charm and its appeal is. And it's, I mean, it's very audio rich. It's giving you an insight into a world that's normally closed. Mm-hmm. But it's, you just get some great stories too, don't you? What do you think the appeal is? I think it's part of what you say that it's a closed society that people are very curious about. A lot of us have been really schooled by TV and movies. And so we have this expectation that it's this really scary violent place. And it's kind of a forbidden place. And I think people are curious about forbidden places. So there's that hook. But then it defies people's expectation of who's going to be in prison. And so I think that makes people curious, too. And, and I'd like to think that people, you know, want to have their, their assumptions challenged and kind of pricked. And so I think that's what grabs them. And then I think we've got really great storytellers, really unusual stories. And people like that. It's, 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 you know, it's entertaining, it's educational, and it's surprising. And that's kind of a great combination. Do you have particular themes in mind? Because you explore a kind of theme or a very broad topic in each episode, whether that's, you know, your cellmate or, or death row, which was a very powerful episode I listened to recently. How do you approach that? How do you get your themes? Or is it just happenstance? Is it just the kind of stories that you find? The idea is to tell the everyday stories of life inside and to try to to try to tell stories that also show commonality between inside and outside people. So that helps forge the connection. So Erlon and I and Antoine, um, who also works on the podcast, sit down and we have brainstorming sessions about topics that we want to cover. So first we come up with an idea, a very broad idea. Like, you know, we knew we wanted to do something about death row. We wanted to do something about family. We want to do something about food, relationships. So those very broad things. And then we'll start filtering down from there and thinking about characters, people who can tell stories really well. And once we find the person who can tell the story, we interview them. And then we try to form the actual narrative after that. But we want to tell stories that have a beginning, middle, and an end, and that are very character-driven. And beyond the, the person telling the story, San Quentin is also always a character within the story. I mean, I know that's an inanimate object, but it's still a big character. The, the prison authorities are obviously pretty supportive. There's a lovely scene in each episode where you have, I think it's Lieutenant Sam Robinson comes on and, and signs off each episode, and he sometimes has a comment, oh, I wasn't that happy about this, and it's, it's yeah. a bit of a running joke. We also want to thank Warden Ron Davis. And as you know, every episode has to be approved by this guy here. This is Lieutenant Sam Robinson at San Quentin State Prison. And I guess I have a problem with just episodes number three with this ear hustle because looking out, which was Pets in Prison, wasn't my favorite. And thus far, uh, with season two, this one is not my favorite. But as usual, I approve this story. What input do they have in the production of 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 the podcast? Yes. Well, Lieutenant Robinson is integral to the project happening. He's the public information officer. And when I wanted to do the podcast, I first had to get his permission to do it. And he was fine with it. And when I told him about the podcast that we were going to enter, he was fine with it, but he didn't think we were going to win. And so <laughs> I think that was part of the supportive part, you know, because he didn't think it would actually happen. So when it did happen, he, like myself, was like, oh man, now we got to, you know, now we got to figure out how to follow do this. through. <laughs> 
Exactly. So his part in it is that he listens to everything and he has to okay it, which, you know, he says at the end. And what he's really looking for is anything that disrupts the safety inside of the prison. He's not giving us artistic input or narrative input, but things that would would cause harm for people inside. But we never feel censored. There has yet to be a story we couldn't do. We've done stories that kind of push the envelope a little bit, talking about things that happen in prison. But, you know, I should say we're not a muckraking podcast. That's not our goal. Our goal is to tell the stories and let people on the outside, you know, kind of judge for themselves what they think is, is or isn't happening inside. But without Lieutenant Robinson and without the support of the administration, I mean, we just couldn't do this project. It's so difficult. And I feel you know, I'm pretty thankful that they let us do it. And I'm surprised all the time by how much we're able to do. It's a really enlightened attitude, isn't it? Because I know in the past on our show, we've tried various times to get access to prisons to record material. And it's pretty much been shut down. It's been impossible for all the health and safety and security reasons you can imagine. But it kind of surprised me that you got such great access in there. Well, I think there's a few things that account for that. One, um, San Quentin has a history of, uh, we're not done, we don't call ourselves journalists, but there's a history of journalism happening inside the prison. So there's a newspaper that I think was originally started to be published there in the 1930s. It stopped for a while and I think has been republished since the 90s. They have the radio program. And the other thing about San Quentin is that it's in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, you know, a a city. It's a very liberal city. And so there's something like 3,000 volunteers that go in and out of the prison every year. And so the, the prison itself is very used to outside people coming in and working on different projects. And I think that's what accounts for this being able to happen. There's plenty of other prisons in California that I don't think would let this, you know, would let this happen. And then I've spent, you know, I've been going into the prison since 2011, and I've spent a lot of time getting to know Lieutenant Robinson and the administration and earning their trust. And I think that's also helped too. But the primary thing is that they are used to these outside projects happening. Yeah. Well, what does it give you? I mean, going into prison and working Mm -hmm. there regularly like you do, it must change your perspective in some way on life outside prison and what it means to be free and and what has value and meaning? Or is that a bit too philosophical? No, not at all. I mean, going into the prison has really changed my life. I mean, as I said earlier, I'm a professor. I'm I'm also a visual artist, a photographer, and my life has changed radically. I, <laughs> right now I'm all about audio and, and working in the prison. And I wouldn't, you know, I spend during production, I, I spend four to six days a week in the prison and, and I'm probably working 40 to 70 hours a week on this project. And I wouldn't do that if I didn't find it one incredibly fulfilling and creatively challenging. It's made me question so many of the assumptions I've had about prison and the meaning of life and how people get to where they are and how you deal with difficulty. And I mean, I don't want to paint a picture like everyone in prison is this, you know, amazing enlightened being, but there are a lot of people in there that have, have spent a lot of time thinking about who they are and, and trying to find meaning. And it's really kind of changed my attitude about how you deal with things that are out of your control. How do you really have honor and accept the things that you do have and not fret about the stuff that you can't have in your life? 
you know, I think it helps you deal with, you know, with, with difficult things that, you know, that can happen in anyone's life, you know, stress or medical issues, whatever it is to be around people who are, are always under pressure and dealing with it gracefully. It can't help but change your own attitudes. And the other thing that's interesting for me is it's an all men, you know, it's all men in there. And my life is not, you know, all about men. I'm used to being around, you know, men and women all the time. So it's interesting to just be in the world of men. I feel like I've learned a lot about <laughs> what it means to be a man, you know, in good and bad ways. And that was, that was never a place I thought I'd find myself. So I always get a little chuckle about that. Like I get to see the secret life of men. And, and one of the things I noticed, and you can't help but pick up on when you listen to the podcast, is the lovely rapport you and Erlon have, where he's kind of, you know, you perhaps come in with a comment that might be somewhat naive, let's say. And he manages, you know, he comes, he has a really lovely manner about him where he goes, oh, yeah, that's okay, Nigel, but it's more like this, actually. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's actually one of the things that makes the podcast work is our relationship. And, you know, I feel like I found this great creative partner and professional partner to work with. We really enjoy each other. We push each other. We, you know, we get mad at each other. And, it's fine, you know, and like, we don't have to censor each other with our questions or comments because we really trust each other. So I can ask whatever I want. He's going to respond in, in the Erlon way. And, you know, I'll do the same for him. You know, the other thing that's really funny when we started this project, when I told Lieutenant Robinson, I wanted to work with him, he was shocked because he said, that guy never talks. He's never going to say anything. And it's kind of true. You know, Erlon is a very quiet person, but in the podcast, he's not at all, right? I mean, no, he's just... A, I would not right? have described him like that at all. Nope. No, he was like the kind of person that at first you might not notice when you go into a room because he's very quiet, but he's always observing. And those are the kind of people I'm most drawn to, the people that are, are really good listeners and observers, and he's definitely that. I was going to ask, do you have a favourite episode or something you'd really like me to play or highlight? I do love so many of them, but one that stays with me because I think it was one of our first that showed a very different side of prison was the one about Roach, the man who loves animals. I love animals, oh yeah. Since I've been in prison, I've had black widows, tarantulas, a lot of grasshoppers, beetles. At San Quentin, inmates aren't allowed to have pets, but some guys get creative, like roach here. Gophers, rabbits, I had four swallows, a toad, praying mantis, 21 snails, frog, red-breasted finch, whose arm broke, pigeons, I had a desert mole that was partially paralyzed, teddy bear hamster, just really lazy with an attitude, the centipede, and it was a wolf. It was a bad little monster. I had two fish that had babies twice. I had a tarantula broke out one time. My celly said, yo, spider got out. I love the part where we're asking the men, like, if you could be any animal, what kind of animal would you be? And they, you know, they have obviously all different answers, but all of their answers really express something about their concerns or about how they see themselves. If I could be any animal, I'd be a, a penguin. They're super cute in tuxedos, and they're like the coolest animals ever. And they slap box like crazy, too. I would want to be a panther, and the reason why is I like the, uh, the sleekness of the animal. Dog, because I know that someone would adopt me. A Galapagos turtle, because they live to be over 150 years old. Lion, because it's king. Marmot, because they're misunderstood. Everybody thinks they're weasels. And they're not. They're marmots. I want to be a water buffalo because it's diligent, 
and because it says very little. It would be an eagle because they can fly. So that means I would always be free. I would always be safe. Tiger, because tigers love their independence. A jellyfish, because it has no natural enemies. That's from episode three, Looking Out, and I was speaking to Ear Hustle's Nigel Poor. And you can find links to the Ear Hustle website and some photos of San Quentin and the production team in action on the Podcast Hour webpage now. That's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Decoder Ring is the name of a new monthly podcast hosted by Slate's TV critic, Willa Paskin, that tries to crack all sorts of cultural mysteries. So far, it's deciphered clowns and when and why they got so scary. And it's also unpicked a fan theory all about the BBC TV series Sherlock. This is episode one of Decoder Ring, and it's all about the laugh track, that canned laughter you'll have heard on many TV comedy shows. Once, it was a really big thing, but now it seems to have fallen out of favour. Imagine it's the 1950s. You've just gotten your very first television set. It weighs a ton, and it's the size of a bureau, with wood panelling and a couple of dials on the side. You set it up in the living room, and you call in the whole family, and you turn it on. It's too late now, but ladies and gentlemen, I must... It's the Jack Benny program. Originally a hit radio show, the series starred Benny, a one-time vaudeville performer and comedian, as a version of himself, a radio star. And now that show from the radio, it's on your television. And even though you've heard it before, you've never seen anything like it. Before, when you watched a performance, it was in public with an audience. And now it's happening in your house. Think about how strange, how new that must have been. And then listen. You hear it? Something recognizable, something reassuring, something that tells you what you're watching. Laughter. It was my sponsor who didn't have the nerve. (laughs) That's how most early TV comedies were recorded, in front of a live audience, oftentimes in studios in New York. By the early 50s, as the TV industry moved away from New York and into Hollywood, executives wanted to move away from this traditional approach of broadcasting what amounted to live stage shows. They wanted to shoot comedies on film. Comedies that weren't live, but that still sounded live. The solution to this problem? The laugh track. And the person who came up with the solution? Charles Douglas. Charlie. Douglas was a mechanical engineer who had worked on radar for the Navy in World War II, so he knew his way around audio and electronics. In 1950, The Hank McCune Show, a mostly forgotten series from NBC, had used a rudimentary laugh track. But by 1953, Douglas had developed a better way to insert a laugh into a show. If you've ever watched an old sitcom, you've almost certainly heard his work. Now we lift up the dryers and see how their hair turned out. (laughs) I asked Ron Simon, curator of television and radio at the Paley Center, formerly the Museum of Television and Radio, what he knew. Charlie Douglas took the concept of just adding laughter, probably from a transcription disc, to create a machine that could do it. And he created this little box using laughter from Marcel Marceau and from Red Skelton from the silent sequences and created tape loops that could then be injected into film comedy to make it a live experience. 
Douglas then poured over these laughs at his kitchen table night after night. He spliced them into analog tape reels that could be played on a patented device Douglas had built himself out of household appliances, organ parts, and vacuum tubes. The device was about three feet tall, the shape of a filing cabinet, very heavy, and had slots for 32 reels, which could hold 10 laughs each. It was officially named the audience response duplicator, but it became known as the Laugh Box, and that's laugh, spelled in the goofy 50 style, L-A-F-F. The Laugh Box is this weird machine that's closer to, we'll say, steampunk than it is to modern electronic technology. Like an adding machine where you just press these dials and laughter would happen. Eventually, it would evolve into more of a typewriter thing where you would punch keys. The Laugh Box could chuckle. (laughs) It could laugh with side relief. (laughs) It even had a reel controlled by the foot pedal that was just titters, tiny little one-person laughs. (laughs) At its most sophisticated, the box had 320 laughs. It could play one laugh at a time by pressing one key, or by pressing multiple keys together, it could play a bunch of laughs at once. So if he thought something was remotely funny, he'd say, let's have this guy laugh right here. <laughs> and he'd just have that going. And maybe he'd come back and watch it and say, you know what, that, could, that wasn't quite as funny as, as the producer's going to want it. So maybe he would add a second sound like this. <laughs> and then he would add it all together and mix it together so you hear the full product. <laughs> Three separate clips overlapped. What would happen was the producer or the director would come back and see his work and say, you know what, that could use a much louder laugh. Can you give it a louder guffaw? And he'd say, all right, sure. So so he'd throw something in just like that. Because laugh boxes were patented and handmade by Douglas, it wasn't like just anyone can make or use one. There were only a handful of working models at a time, and he basically had a monopoly on the process. By the 1960s, almost all sitcoms were single-camera shows filmed without an audience and tricked out with a raucous Charlie Douglas laugh track. The boxes supplied laughter for tens of thousands of episodes of television. Tens of thousands. Maybe even more. Everything from the Munsters, Bewitched, the Beverly Hillbillies, Gilligan's Island, to Mary Tyler Moore and Cheers. For decades, their sound was ubiquitous. But Douglas didn't want to talk about his device. Douglas, whenever he went to a show, would cover it over and no one would actually see him at work. There is something, you know, embarrassing. It was certainly part of history, but, you know, not many producers want to talk about and really actually talk about, you know, how the last sausage was actually made. Douglas hardly ever gave interviews or spoke about his work. A 1966 piece from TV Guide titled The Hollywood Sphinx and His Laugh Box, in which the Sphinx is Douglas, described the mystery surrounding the man and his device. The author wrote, If the Laugh Box should start acting strangely, the Laugh Boys wheel it into the men's room, locking the door behind them so no one can peek. I mention the name Charlie Douglas, and it's like Cosa Nostra. Everybody starts whispering. It's the most taboo topic in TV. I want to say here that every knock on the laugh track that you've ever heard that it's fake, that it's corny, that it's cheating, that it's not funny, that it thinks audiences are dumb, people have been saying since the beginning. And that's part of the reason for Douglas's silence. But listening to Douglas's laughs, hearing Paul try to recreate them, it changed how I thought about them. I've always prided myself on being open-minded about the laugh track. A funny show is a funny show, with or without one. But even so, I always thought of them as automated, mechanical. But they aren't really that at all. 
They're a craft. Charlie Douglas played his laugh box like it was an instrument, literally. A lot of people think it was just a bunch of laughs thrown into a tape machine and someone's pushing the button. It was an art. I mean, he took it very seriously. Here's one of Charlie's laughs. It was used in the late 60s and 70s, including in the pilot for MASH. (laughs) You hear the laughter tailing off at the end? I love that. It tells a story in a single laugh. There's a joke, but one guy in the audience, he doesn't get it right away. He's a split second late, and then he laughs a little bit longer. Here, listen to it again. (laughs) Charlie Douglas wasn't just a sound engineer. He was a psychologist. The rap on the laugh track is that it's fake laughter from a fake audience. But that's not quite right. The laugh track doesn't just represent a bogus audience. It represents an audience of one, of Charlie Douglas. He definitely goosed laughs at producers' instructions, but to a large extent, he and the people who worked for him followed their guts. It's incredible that one man's taste and sense of humor were so important in pacing an entire type of television comedy. But it's true. That's Dakota Ring from Slate, presented by Willa Paskin and produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. You can find that, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Or if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now, there's a link to the programme page. Cows in Wartime, the Bovine Poet Laureate, and rumoured sightings of a rare pygmy cow. Are you seeing any kind of a theme here? They're all part of a highly industry-specific podcast that describes itself as the number one podcast for those involved or just interested in the production of beef animals and dairy herds. Here's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast with its lamb investigation special. Lamb is pernicious. Lamb is the one issue that no one's talking about and the issue that everyone should be talking about. Lamb is a way of life. It's um, it's part of our heritage in New Zealand, and which is why it's so hard to hear that um, it's causing so many problems in this country. I'll tell you this. I am a professional risk assessor, and this threat terrifies me. You will not find lamb or mint on my plate, nor on my children's. If I'd known that a piece of lamb would have this devastating effect on my life, I would have thought very hard. I wouldn't have been swayed, even by a a piece of lamb, however beautifully cooked. I would not have tasted it. I would have gone, no, take that lamb away from me, that filthy, dirty, disgusting plate of lamb away from me. But I was vulnerable. Lamb. Amongst the four meats, it's very much the black sheep. And also the white sheep. What is often forgotten is that lamb itself is harmless, as harmless as a chicken pie, a beef plat, or a plate of venison, a.k.a. forest beef. It's a question of sources, and lamb leads inexorably to mint, the bastard herb. But how prevalent is the consumption of lamb? Can anything be done about it? And should I renew my Amazon Prime? The first two of these questions are the focus of this Beef and Dairy Network podcast, Lamb Investigation Special. 
I went to see friend of the show, Dr Sam Archer, a GP best known for his appearances on BBC Two's What the Doctor Ordered and Channel 4's Celebrity Euthanasia Live. Dr Archer appeared on this podcast last year, giving advice to anyone with a lamb problem. The best thing to do really is to to seal yourself up in your home with some heavy-duty tape and just, just try and go out with some dignity. He took me for a walk around his local area to show me signs of lamb use, or as it's known on the streets, bow peeping. Uh, here's a great example. OK, you see at the corner of this street? Yeah. OK, you see there, we've got uh, an old man, an old woman and a young boy. We'll just hang back a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we've got an old man, an old woman and a young boy there. Um, this is a classic example of bow peeping happening right here because it, it's all to do with, you see... Um, Usually in threes, these people get the lamb, and that's because it's one for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. And see, that is that, that's how they go about getting the lamb. So which, which of those three will actually be making the transaction? Uh, so that'll be the dame. Right. The dame will be the one who... Uh, she, she'll be uh, facilitating the, the selling of the lamb between the seller, the master, and the buyer. That's the little boy who lives down the lane. Right. Mm. So this is classic bow peeping. Yeah. Happening in, in broad, broad daylight. daylight. Yeah. yeah. I have to remember this is totally legal, though. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it's disgusting. In the safety of his home, Dr Archer told me that since his appearance on this podcast last year, he has spent a lot of time researching the field more deeply. He was shocked when he discovered the gravity of what we're facing. It frightens me for the future of our, our nation and, and the globe, actually, when I think about how dangerous lamb is to, to people. You know, we're all thinking about the polar ice caps when actually we should be looking at something else that's white and moving slowly. And that's, that's sheep and the meat they produce. Hi, uh, I'm Ted Busk. I'm a senior analyst at uh, the Global Threats Index. We're an organization which determines the probability of various threats to humankind. Uh, and then we provide that information to governments and NGOs. Ted Busk is one of the world's most highly respected risk analysts. Every year at GTI, we put together an index of dangers that are facing humankind worldwide. Uh, this year's list, top 10 is the stuff that you would expect largely. Pandemic flu, asteroid event, nuclear conflict, uh, unspecified mystical plague. But for the first time, and this is big news, the first time the lamb epidemic is in the top 10, coming in at number nine, right between full robot takeover and a witch's curse. So based on current trends, and I'm extrapolating here, we estimate that the global lamb epidemic and especially the mint consumption that's associated with the global lamb epidemic will be the number one existential threat facing humankind within five to 10 years. Claire was a very happy child. The life and soul of the party. Everyone adored her, very chatty, bubbly, flourishing, really. The writer, Leonard Mouveau, was living happily with his wife and teenage daughter Claire in Herefordshire. Then he got a new job, writing quirky and light-hearted copy for the side of juice bottles, and moved the family to London. And she started at her new school, and suddenly I noticed total change in her. She suddenly became uncommunicative and, and sullen. And we had absolutely no idea why. One night, Leonard got home late after a long day writing text for the inside of a speech bubble emanating from a cool raspberry to find that Claire hadn't come home. 
Leonard rang all of her friends in her school, but no one had any idea where she was. Leonard was frantic. I began putting missing posters up all over, all over the area and then further afield to the neighbouring boroughs. And then a few nights later, I received a text message from an unknown number saying someone thought they had seen my daughter. So I followed the directions in the text and I followed them here, just this way here, through to this, this palace of bins behind this hotel. And I, I searched around and eventually I, I noticed that rather oversized yellow bin over there and I, I saw this trace of movement, a blonde head bobbing around. And as I got nearer, I looked inside and I saw, there she was, there was my daughter, Claire, chomping down on an enormous leg of lamb, really going to town on it. And she looked up at me with these hollow eyes, staring straight through me like she'd never seen me before in her life. I felt like I didn't exist. I felt like everything that I had known or thought I knew had completely fallen away like an ashtray made of snow. In all probability, Claire had been sold that leg of lamb by a lamb dealer from New Zealand. The thing is, is that in New Zealand we are sort of, I guess, capable of, of taking lamb. Jessica, not her real name, is a former lamb dealer. When I was a young kid, I I, uh, I grew up on lamb chops, you know. I mean, I um, when I was first teething, my mum would take out a frozen lamb chop out of the freezer and, and I sort of just gum it. When it's so uh, prevalent in your diet from such a, an early stage of your life, I mean, it doesn't really negatively affect you because you, you don't know anything but lamb. I personally have never eaten any other meat. Uh, I've only eaten lamb. I've uh, I've once nearly had some chicken, and that was I was really drunk. Jessica is originally from Auckland, but is now living in South London. So basically, um, when anyone gets like a certain age in New Zealand, they kind of get sent over here uh, to kind of have their overseas experience. You know, get to know people on the other side of the world, do some travelling, obviously deal lamb and uh, and introduce it into the UK market. And you're kind of brought up your whole life knowing that you will make this trip. You will be transporting about 23 kgs of, of, of um, frozen lamb in your uh, luggage to be able to sell and introduce over here. I mean, is it illegal? No. Uh, is it frowned upon here? Absolutely. Uh, the customs officers were really quite abusive is probably a strong word, but they were uh, had a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions like, why is your bag bleeding? Um, what does that smell? Why don't you have any clothes? Uh, why, is your pa- like, why is your passport just like covered in meat juice? As Jessica says, she was able to come to this country and sell that suitcase full of thawing lamb absolutely legally. We're, we're living in a world where lamb is legal and mint sauce is still legal. It says that this is permissible, that this is OK. It's not. And I don't know why they're not stepping in. I don't know why they're not doing more to stop young people getting hold of lamb. Um, personally, I think that there should be raids at every port. They should, they, you know, any refrigerated van, they should be going in and, and tearing out the lamb because it's just, it's upsetting that more hasn't been done. But I think that's an example of how this current government is just slow to act on lamb. So do you think it is um, this specific government, for example, is it 
the Conservative Party in this country, mm. or is it across the board? Because, you know, we all heard those reports of the Labour Party conference mm-hmm. absolutely reeking of mint sauce. <sighs> Uh, the, the the smell kicking off the back of that hotel. Yeah. Some people having to be hospitalised just from the fumes coming out from the windows from the party conference. They play it so dry and deadpan it could almost be true. Some of the Beef and Dairy Network podcasts Lamb Investigation Special. And thanks to the English comedian Benjamin Partridge for giving us permission to play that. And that's about all from us for now. Just a reminder, you've been listening to Ear Hustle, Dakota Ring and the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. From me, Richard Scott, so long and happy listening. I'll be back at the same time next week. This March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.